0: What is up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And today I am talking with the amazing Maya Salovitz. All right, so if you don't know, if you haven't got the memo, Maya is a best-selling author. Her first book was The Unbroken Brain and it was all about addiction. And she's a science writer, but specifically about neuroscience. So she really focused on that in her first book. And now her brand new book at the time of publishing this, her brand new book, Undoing Drugs, just came out yesterday. And Maya is awesome. She sent me an early copy of the book, so I was able to read it. And we recorded this to publish this week when the book launched. So as of now, you can check out the description down below and go get a copy of Undoing Drugs. So the book, it's largely about the untold history of harm reduction when it comes to the addiction epidemic that we have here in the United States. Uh, Some of you who heard my episode with David Poses, we talked about that a little bit. And yeah, Maya is talking about it in this book. And not only does she lay out the history and how her personal story of recovery and learning about harm reduction. But then she goes in to talk about drug policies and things like that and the stigma. So in this conversation, not only do I have her kind of define harm reduction and all that, but we have a good conversation because as many of you know, I am completely abstinent. You know what I mean? But we, we talk about it. We talk about you know uh, how different people can recover, but mainly we talk about the stigma and you know, the misconceptions about addicts and uh, mental illness, people who have a dual diagnosis. We go through all that stuff. So this is a very, very, very important episode. Uh, She has an awesome book, so I hope you guys check it out after you listen to this conversation that we have. But please do me a favor as well. Uh, Aside from getting this book and following Maya on her social media, which is down below, there's also some resources down below and you could check those out, but share this episode. Share this episode with people Who are unfamiliar with the topic of harm reduction and what's going on in the United States? Because the numbers just came out, and last year, because of COVID, the overdose rates are still climbing. So we need some solutions, we need them ASAP. And Maya's book goes through a lot of that, and we talk about. Many of those solutions in this conversation, all right? But, anyways, uh, yeah, I'm down below in the description too. Follow me on social media at The Rewired Soul um, on Instagram and Twitter. I let you know about upcoming guests, the books I'm reading, and yeah, I like connecting with all of you guys, so make sure you're following me, all right? But, anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Maya Solovitz about her brand new book, Undoing Drugs The Untold Story of Harm Reduction. Good morning, Maya. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing today?
1: I'm all right. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So we're going to be talking about your brand new book, Undoing Drugs. And I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy. So the first first thing, um, for those who don't know you, can you kind of introduce yourself and what motivated you to write this book?
1: Sure. So I am a person in recovery. And in 1986, I was injecting cocaine and heroin pretty much daily. Uh, Fortunately, somebody happened to be visiting from San Francisco. And before I had been injecting for very long, she taught me to use bleach to clean my works. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: since half of the people um, who injected drugs in New York at the time were already HIV positive at that point, it was kind of amazing that I managed to avoid it. and I believe that uh, the woman from San Francisco saved my life. Yeah. At the time, I did not know her name um, or what was going on really. Um, and eventually I learned that this was a was part of something called harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And I had been so outraged when she taught me because I was like, why why aren't people telling us this? Yeah. like why do people think like, Forget giving out needles, teaching us to use bleach. How is that going to encourage drug use? We're already using the drugs. Yeah. Um, it's only going to encourage not dying. So um, clearly people did not want to encourage that. And and the sort of amazing stigma that is associated with drug use and especially IV drug use um, mm-hmm. also shocked me. Um, you know, at personally experiencing it and just sort of seeing the way the world thought it was okay and sometimes still thinks it's okay to just see us as subhuman. Mm-hmm. So when I did get into recovery, I was not one of those people who was very functional when I was actively injecting. Um, I wanted right. to learn more about this and I wanted to find out more about like what had derailed my life basically mm-hmm. and why people thought my life had so little value. Yeah. Um, so I became a writer and became obsessed with covering drugs and drug policy and addiction and neuroscience. And so that eventually led me to writing this book because nobody else had written a history of harm reduction. And I figured it was about time that somebody did so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons I I fell in love with your work because I'm a neuroscience nerd. And I was like, ooh, you know, because your first book on broken brain, I'm like, all right, I like this. And, and yeah, I, I, I can totally relate to what you're, you're saying, because when I got clean, I did a I did a cold turkey detox from opioids. Never even heard of Suboxone. Never even heard of it, right? So like I was in a sober living and I'm doing this cold turkey thing and these guys are like taking Suboxone. I'm like, wait, that was an option? And then, you know, the more, the more I started to learn about different medications and everything like that. And you cover so much in this book from 12-step programs and how they handle it to like, you know, doctors and treatment centers and everything. I wish we can cover it all, but we need people to read the book. So first, first, I want to kind of, for, for those who were trying to educate and those that you're trying to reach with this who aren't aware of harm reduction, can you kind of define harm reduction? Because it seems like with drug language, there's there's these very vague definitions. So harm reduction, you mentioned bleach with needles, right? And then there's some people who try to drink in moderation or use in moderation and all these different things. Do you kind of put it all under one or how do you define harm reduction? Sure. So
1: basically harm reduction within drug policy is the idea that we should focus on stopping people from getting hurt, not stopping them from getting high. Mm. So. I do not care if you have euphoria. In fact, I'm happy if you have euphoria. I only care as a regular, you know, speaking from the perspective of somebody as a policymaker or a regulator, Mm -hmm. I only should care if you're getting hurt or if you're hurting other people. Mm -hmm. And so drug policy has unfortunately said, let's hurt people who use drugs in order to prevent other people from taking drugs. And this has been a complete failure and it increases harm all over the place. Mm -hmm. So what's radical about harm reduction in the drugs world is that once you start focusing on cutting harm, then the harm associated with prohibition comes into play and the Mm -hmm. harm associated with criminalization comes into play. And pretty soon you're like, wait a minute, this is more harmful than the drugs. Like, why are we doing this?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so
1: that's why harm reduction um, is both like something concrete, like a clean needle to reduce mm. the risk of HIV and other bloodborne diseases, and something more abstract, like how do you set policy in a way that reduces harm, and what are the measures that are most significantly helpful in terms of reducing harm?
0: Yeah. And so on the subject of policy, because it's it's interesting, like our country is insane sometimes. So as, as I was mentioning before I call, I live in Nevada, weeds legalized, you know what I mean? And, uh, and it, it varies from state to state, like who has methadone clinics and all that. And you probably know better than I do, but I believe last I checked, we don't even have needle exchanges legalized in the United States, or I believe like Seattle was trying to do something like that. No,
1: I mean it, this is the deal. So it is legal. Basically, syringe laws are are on the state level, mm. and so um, most states at this point have decriminalized possession of syringes, and many states make it avail make needles available over the counter without a prescription. In fact before HIV, many states did not require a prescription to Mm. needles. Those states had very minimal HIV epidemics. New York, on the other hand, which um, criminalized needles and criminalized needle sales by pharmacies without a prescription, had 50% of our IV drug users infected um, before HIV was even really discovered. Mm. So um, it was clear even before needle exchange existed that providing clean needles would be an effective way to prevent the spread of bloodborne diseases among drug users because nobody actually likes to share needles. Yeah. Like we're supposed to be these horrible, selfish, evil people. And then it's peace, love, and sharing when it comes to needles. Like, you know, also like to use a very gross analogy, it's like sharing a tampon. It's right. not. Nobody wants to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, it's hard for people who, who aren't, addicts or you know recovering addicts to really understand like we it's this desperation right like there's things that we wouldn't normally do but it's like you're in that moment it's like okay well i'll share this and you know whatever but if we had the option we wouldn't but from from your research and and you know looking at this for so long and seeing like the transition like i just got clean in 2012 right like so I'm curious. Like, do you think it's more the politicians who are kind of the the major roadblock, or do you think it's a societal issue? Because I've heard of people protesting and freaking out if like a methadone clinic was opening in their area. Like, so if anybody out there listening wanted to get involved, like, should we should we focus our attention towards policymakers or our communities to destigmatize? I
1: think, yeah, I actually think that politicians are the major roadblock at this point. Because most people recognize like two thirds of Americans actually support decriminalizing drug possession because they recognize that putting people in a cage is not a treatment for a health problem. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense for marijuana and it doesn't make sense for any substance. Now you can argue about legalization and the details around how would you prevent another Purdue Pharma. Um, But it's very clear that locking people up is not a treatment for addiction. And Mm -hmm. that if anybody you love or you yourself has an addiction, you don't want to be locked up. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know that that won't help. Addiction itself is defined as compulsive drug use that continues despite punishment. So why would punishment fix it? It makes no sense. So Mm -hmm. I think the public, as has been very clear with marijuana for a long time, is way ahead of the politicians on this because if you looked at it, the polling on marijuana was favorable towards legalization. And in fact, state initiatives did legalization many, many years before Mm -hmm. state legislatures would okay it. Because people who are going to vote for an initiative, I don't care, I'm not getting reelected. But the politicians were so afraid of the demagoguery of the 1990s, which was like, if you're soft on crime or drugs, you will never win an election. So the Democrats had to like outdo the Republicans with being so tough on drugs. And that's how we got into this policy messing part. Um, because everybody decided, yeah, drugs are bad. We should do everything to fight them without considering anything about the effects of that. Except of course, considering that it will win me elections and make me uh, as a politician able to like lock up lots of black people.
0: Yeah. And
1: other people of color. Um, so. If you think about it from the point of view of um politicians wanting to win elections and politicians wanting to like dog whistle racism, our drug policy has been really successful. Mm. In terms of drugs and addiction, and in terms of harm to people, not so much. But the um, you know, it one thing that harm reduction makes clear is that the roots of our drug laws are racist. They have nothing to do with science. It was not like some government committee sat down and said tobacco's safe, so we should legalize it, and marijuana's unsafe, and we should like really lock people up for it. It was mm-hmm. a series of panics over. Oh my God, they're gonna let white, you know, black people are gonna let are gonna teach white women to like you know <laughs> right. pot or, you know, and they're gonna seduce them or something like this, and we cannot defile. You know, it's just yeah, you know, um, really, really, really racist. And yeah. you look at, I mean, even just look at the New York Times coverage in the 1980s. It's like blatantly racist, um, you know? And I mean, I remember sort of early on in my journey, like, you know, I used to say, oh, I'm not your typical addict. And then I realized what I'm basically saying is I'm not black and uh... actually black people are not typically addicts. And the—that um, that is a racist statement, mm-hmm. um, you know? Um, like there is no typical person with addiction as I prefer to say now um the the way we stereotype it is totally due to criminalization
0: Mm. yeah yeah and uh you have an excellent chapter in there uh i believe it was undoing divisions and you kind of talk about that history and you mentioned michelle alexander's awesome book the new jim crow and all these things and and yeah and so here's an and like when I think about this stuff, like, uh, so I'm half black, obviously I look white, right? But I was a prescription opioid addict. Like my my dealers were like white la- like older white ladies, right? <laughs> like I would just go to the suburbs and I would, you know, buy their extra pills or, you know, whatever. And yeah, and you know, after working in treatment for, you know, a few years too and seeing people come in and out, I, I do feel like there's, like, if you, if you tell someone, think of an addict, who do you see, right? And, you know, they might see someone, you know, of a different race or someone who's like in poverty or whatever, I've seen- I actually have a great
1: anecdote, anecdote about that. Um, I was once on Oprah um, related to a show about addiction that I worked on for mm. lawyers. And we, I booked the people with addiction in the first hour of the show. It was all just a, a sort of montage of people talking about their addictions. And mm-hmm. I booked them to be very diverse. Um, so there were white people, black people, Hispanic people, you know, just like really diverse race, class, gender, whatever. Um, so Oprah, in the opening of her show, she like, up the pictures of i think it was eight people that Mm. were um that were in there and she asked the audience to pick out the addicts and they picked the black people and this was Oprah's audience and it was like i was just like i can't believe that actually worked like in to illustrate the racism that is there but it was just like i couldn't you know it was just um and you know but i mean but if you look at like and and that was probably in the mid 90s you know, not long after Mm -hmm. all that crack hysteria. And if you looked at the imagery in the crack stuff, they were never showing white people who smoked crack, even though most of the people who smoked crack were white.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And uh, the whole crack epidemic and, you know, and people not realizing the harsher penalties for cocaine just being in a different form and, and all these things. And yeah, so I'm always thinking like, you know, do we need to educate people? Do they not realize, you know, those who aren't like drug users or that realize like the same, the similarities. Well,
1: I, yeah, the I was always high. like shocked by that because um, you can shoot powder cocaine. Shooting drugs is just as, is often more addictive than smoking them. Mm -hmm. Like smoking crack is, and shooting cocaine are equally addictive. I would argue the fact that shooting cocaine is probably a little bit more so. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, the fact that you can shoot powder cocaine completely wipes out any legal distinction that could be between these two substances, even if you were to argue that, well, the smokable form gets to the brain faster, not than injecting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that goes straight to the bloodstream and all that. And, (laughs) and, you know, and, and speaking about, you know, policy and all that. So you, you cover, you know, uh, Narcan, right, and this this life saving medication for uh, opioid overdoses. So, first, for those who don't know what this drug is, can you kind of explain how it works with your neuroscientific genius for the the lay people out there?
1: Well, sure. Um, so, anyway, naloxone, which is the you know generic name for the drug. Um, is an opioid antagonist. And that means it blocks the opioid receptors in the brain without activating them. It has a very strong affinity for the receptor, which means basically that it knocks off any opioids you have there, including your natural endogenous opioids.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So, which are like the chemicals in your brain that make you feel connected to people and warm and happy and naturally so without any external opioids for most people. For some people, we need a little extra um but um anyway so naloxone is basically a pure antidote to opioid overdose and if somebody has overdosed on opioids even if they've taken alcohol and benzos which typically is the case because typically overdoses are mixtures of drugs Mm -hmm. um but anyway whatever else you've taken that has a respiratory depression kind of effect I.e. slows breathing because basically when you die of an opioid overdose, with some exceptions, you just forget to breathe, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. unconscious, and your breathing mechanism doesn't kick in and you go blue and right. So um, Naloxone stops that process, reverses that process, allows the part of the brainstem that controls breathing to um, go to work again and uh, you wake up and you're a little bit confused and if they've given you too much, you might be a little bit in withdrawal. Um, if they've given you an appropriate dose, you should not be too much in withdrawal or maybe not in withdrawal at all. Um, but um, anyway, it's a fabulous and completely harmless drug. Um, mm-hmm. if, if I inject it into a random person on the street, which obviously you shouldn't do, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it will not do any harm. Um, you know, They might possibly notice a bad mood for about 20 minutes but um even that you know people mostly can't tell it from placebo mm-hmm. um and it doesn't you know like if you were to use it on someone with a heart attack or something like that it wouldn't hurt them obviously you would also need to treat the heart attack yeah. um, but basically it's like if you you know if you find somebody that's overdosed and it turns out to be cocaine rather than um an opioid um giving them naloxone won't hurt mm-hmm. it won't help um you need to do other things in that Um, instance but um you know it's basically one of the safest drugs in some sense it's safer than water because you can actually overdose on water Mm -hmm. um but there is no known case of overdosing on on naloxone or marijuana for that matter
0: yeah uh yeah a few years ago here in las vegas i i got certified to administer you know naloxone all that and they had the nasal spray they had like this one where it like you know injects you like right in your leg it's like this little like Needle Oh yeah, the
2: really expensive one.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. So that's one of the things it was, there were some of them that were just insanely expensive. I've been to some, uh, you know, uh, just uh, events where they gave out like free doses and everything. So uh, I think it was just in the last week or two, they released the 2020 uh, like drug related death studies. And it was like record highs, you know, because of the pandemic and everything like that. So one of the things that baffled me kind of like what we were talking about earlier. One is that a lot of people don't even know about this life-saving drug, right? With so many people addicted to opioids and this thing can just bring people back to life. Mm-hmm. So awareness seems like an issue. Pricing seems like an issue, but also legalization and access because- I mean, you...
1: here's, the, here's the issue with that. I, I went to an FDA hearing on this a few years ago mm. and I was like, it should be over the counter. Um, it should be in every first aid kit we need a media campaign for it to be in every first aid kit so that you know if your little kid gets into your codeine, or your teenager does it or your grandmother forgets and takes more you've got it right there um that way it's not stigmatizing it's not about oh you are an addicted person or somebody is addicted in your household it's more like everybody should have this because people can overdose um so anyway um the thing about making it over the counter is that insurers don't cover over-the-counter things mm-hmm. and so you could probably come up with a workaround for this and the FDA should have made it over the counter years ago because I've said about its extraordinary safety record um but um there is a sort of insurance related question and cost related question about whether that would be better um anyway it should be in every first aid kit everybody should just have some just in case like you know Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you um you could save a life um and you know, it's like, it's like the pilots say about flight safety equipment. It's better to like, uh, have it and, and not need, need it, it yeah. than need it and not have
0: Yeah. So do you, I don't, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what, what is, I'm wondering what the primary issue is. Is it expensive or is it, you no, know? No, it's a generic
1: uh, drug and it's been generic for many, many, many years. Mm. It is not expensive. It is actually, I believe, a byproduct of the production of, uh, you know, opioids from poppies. Mm. Um, and it is not especially expensive to produce from what I understand. It's just capitalism or hypercapitalism right. that is, Creating this ridiculous situation where um, people are charging, you know, huge amounts of money for a generic safe drug that should have been OTC years ago, except for financial.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I, 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 you know, was wondering because, you know, like uh, it's issues that we're seeing with like insulin or AIDS medications and things like that, where, you know, the pharmaceutical companies can be like, ah, we'll mark this up and, you know, go insane with it. And there's all these people dying. And that's kind of why I try to get people like, hey, pay attention to politicians and what they're talking about with all these things. Because like, no matter who you are, we all take medications at some point are going to need them. And there's certain ones that are like literally saving people's lives and we need access to and- I mean, that that insulin thing,
1: so crazy um mm-hmm. i still don't understand how anybody could like have that on their conscience like that they would do that like i just i just don't get it
0: yeah yeah i uh, i recently had uh marshall allen on here to talk about his book on you know the the medical debt and issues and things like that. And, but I'm always just thinking, I'm just like, you know we need more like regulations or I don't know if nationalized healthcare or, you know, whatever it is just so people don't even have to worry about it. But that's a, that is a whole other conversation. (laughs) Um, But so here's, here's something that I get concerned about just, you know, my experience working with a bunch of addicts and everything like that. And this might dip into your topic about like parents and programs like uh, Al-Anon and things like that. So when it comes to naloxone, uh, naloxone, somebody who repeatedly overdoses, right? Somebody who goes back and uses and everything. And, you know, you have a chapter on doing tough love, right? So I, I'm curious your opinion, like say it was, you know, your your friend or a relative or somebody who kept overdosing, you kept needing Naloxone, like what what would a solution B, be, because you know you covered uh, issues with treatment centers and twelve-step programs. So I'm curious, like, what's the solution? I mean, you solution? just have to
1: keep naloxoneing the them. Like, if that's all you can do, because if they are dead, they are never going to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there seems to be a syndrome that occurs where people become increasingly vulnerable to overdose. And so they, there are certain people that just repeatedly overdose mm. for reasons that are not known. But, um, you know, and perhaps uh, research can better understand what's going on with that. Um, There's also something that people should know about regarding overdose that a lot of people don't know, which is that uh, tolerance is conditioned. So, what this means is if you inject with different people in a different circumstance, even a different color substance. Um, you may have less tolerance even if the dose in the drug is the same and normally would be tolerant to it and wouldn't overdose. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that there may be such a crisis right now is that the insane variability of the supply, not even the fact that like fentanyl is very strong, but on top of that um, is causing condition tolerance to lower and meaning that people are overdosing, even on a dose that normally wouldn't kill Mm -hmm. them. And there was an incredible experiment on this with rats where they gave them opioids in a cage and they got them, you know, conditioned to the overdose to, you know, they got them up pretty high. Then they put them in a different cage and gave them the same dose and half of them died of overdose. Mm. So It's a very strong effect, at least in rats. Um, And but we know that it happens in humans. People report this all the time. And lots of people who are using do not know about this. So that's one thing that we could do with education. Um, But the other thing is just that, you know, um, harm reduction is harm reduction. It's Mm -hmm. not harm elimination. And as much as we're gonna try, we're not gonna be able to save everyone. Mm
2: -hmm. But,
1: you know, that guy that overdosed 10 times, he may go on to save 100 people from overdose if you save them the 11th time. So, you know, it's just like, I mean, it's infuriating and, and, you know, very difficult to handle as a family member or a loved one, um, of somebody in that circumstance. But, um, there are, there are many people who did overdose insane numbers of time Mm -hmm. and then got into recovery. So, you know, so it's just like, um, you know, we don't like you know, stop giving people insulin because they don't like, uh, Mm. you know, control their sugar well. Um, And it's just as silly to like not give naloxone
0: yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I, I definitely agree. And that's something, you know, I, I try to teach people who are chronic relapsers and want to give up. I have met people who have re- like chronic relapsers, chronic overdosers, and then now they're sober five, six, seven years. Their life is just phenomenal. You know, like you never you never know because like, especially me, I relapsed multiple times and then something finally, it just, it just clicked. So-
1: And I mean, the other thing that's really important, if you want to prevent overdose death, get people on methadone and suboxone. Mm -hmm. If you stay on it, it cuts your risk of dying by 50% or more, even if you continue to use because it keeps your tolerance up. Mm -hmm. So if you are a person who is repeatedly overdosing, even if you don't want to get into recovery, just get on it so that and take it steadily so that you can minimize your risk.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've known multiple people who, you know, they didn't realize their tolerance had changed. They went back to their same dose and they, they overdosed. You know what I mean? So on that, and so with addicts and family members, how big of a role do you think education is? And do you think the stigma and criminalization is blocking people from getting educated because we want to look at it as such a black and white? situation
1: yeah i mean i i think you know one of the things that happened that surprised me after unbroken brain came out was that i heard from a lot of family members who read it and said oh i can understand my addiction my addicted person you know for the first time like oh, they're not doing this to like mess with me. They're not doing this (laughs) because they're angry, rebelling against me. They're not doing it to like make my life miserable. They're doing it because they believe that this is the only way they can survive emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so when you kind of get more empathy across that um, and more people with addiction can empathize with their own selves and not be so hard on themselves, you can get a lot of good things happening. And I think Mm -hmm. like, yeah, You're not going to reduce stigma dramatically without decriminalizing because the whole point of criminalization is to create stigma. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't understand why people don't get this, but like, if you criminalize something, you want people to see it as bad and not do it. Mm -hmm. And you want people to see the people who do it as bad people because that way you will presumably not have to lock up the entire population for violating the law. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know um so yes um criminalization is an enormous also obviously the harm that comes from having a criminal record and from mm. the itself which massively increases overdose risk um and doesn't provide treatment 99% of the time um yeah. you know it's it's just so insane i mean you know if people ask like what things are we going to see as you know ridiculous and primitive you know, a hundred years from now, looking back, this is going to be number one on my list anyway.
2: Because
1: it's it's senseless and it's racist and it's wrong. Um, But so in terms of actually working to reduce stigma, like I try to use people first language. Um, I try to not use clean. Um, I Mm. try to, um, because that implies that active users are dirty. Um, I try to um, uh, just humanize the situation because, because I don't look like your stereotypical person with addiction, um, I can get people who have that stereotype in their head to think differently, Mm -hmm. um, at least sometimes. And so, you know, I think one of the actually research demonstrated ways of minimizing stigma is by introducing people to people in recovery and people, even active drug users, and just making their human story clear. Mm. Um, I think one of the things, you know, the most stigmatized people among people with addiction are probably women who are pregnant during their addictions.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and I have never talked to one of those women and not come away feeling like half traumatized just by listening to their story. Oh, yeah. Um, This is not a case of frivolous people like just wanting to have fun. It is the case of people who've been raped since they were three, Mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, watched their father shoot their mother, um, uh, who witnessed all kinds of insane, horrible things often repeatedly. Like when you hear those stories, oh, now I understand why you can't quit smoking the crack, you know? Um, And so, that is really helpful in terms of stigma because it's just people have so mystified drugs that oh we don't understand why people would do it well they do it for relief and they do it for Mm -hmm. pleasure and they do it for meaning um and so you know all of those things are needed if you're traumatized or mentally ill which at least half to two-thirds of people with addiction are before they ever touch a substance Mm -hmm and you know they we have this silly idea that oh people take drugs and then it turns them crazy no um and crazy is a word i try to avoid but (laughs) typically the um what happens is like say in my case i'm depressed i Mm -hmm. can't socialize because i am aspie and I discover that yes, people do want to hear me go on and on when I'm talking about drugs. So it's not that much of a social problem. Um, and people want drugs, so then they I can socialize, yay. Um, yeah. And also the drug reduces my um, sensory issues and oversensitivity. Mm. And so, yeah, why wouldn't you do drugs in that circumstance? So if you understand why people start and what happens in terms of um, the way the brain changes that you know, sort of changes your priorities and helps you to continue.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: if you understand that, then you're a lot more compassionate towards people with addiction typically. I mean, I, I get a little annoyed with the hijacked brain stuff because <laughs> you know, the reality is people don't shoot up in front of the police. Mm. you know um and people do plan very very clearly to make sure that they ensure their supply so that's not like unconscious zombie behavior there um so it doesn't mean however that we are like willfully trying to destroy our life or the life of others it means that just like you are when you're in love you're just relentlessly focused on either that person or the substance. Mm -hmm. And you believe that emotionally you need that, otherwise you are not going to survive. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: when something is linked up with your brain systems that are around survival and reproduction, like you're gonna do it. So the thing is to detach that and help people find better ways of coping Mm -hmm. that are less destructive. And sometimes that is moderating the drug use. Sometimes that is abstinence. Sometimes that would be taking methadone or buprenorphine or even heroin if you can get it legally long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you need antidepressants. Sometimes you need anti-anxiety. Like there's all kinds of different, you might need to start weightlifting. I don't know, like whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you can um, You can often find a combination of things that are gonna sustain your recovery. But mm-hmm. just assuming like it's, It's kind of like when people try to like stop autistic people from doing autistic behaviors, like, you know, repeating things or whatever autistic Mm -hmm. behavior may be, like, you just want them to look normal. They just Mm -hmm. want to feel okay. So if you take away their repetitive behavior without providing something else that gives them comfort, you are not fixing the problem. You might look, they might look better to the Mm -hmm. outside world, but that is not, the thing and similarly we just fixate on the drug or we fixate on the behavior instead of saying what purpose is this behavior serving and can we get that need met in a different way and also if somebody's just doing an annoying repetitive behavior like just leave them alone let them do it <laughs> if you annoyed go in the other room. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I I am loving this conversation, by because I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, there's this misconception that people wake up in the morning and they say, you know what, I'm gonna shoot some heroin and destroy my life. You know, uh, and and I can relate to what you were saying about you know talking to these women and you know uh who are addicted like. I, I had my own story, right? My mom was an alcoholic until I was 20 and just, you know, my traumatic childhood. But then when I started working in treatment and working with hundreds of different addicts and hearing them their stories, I, I'm, I'm like, how could anybody hear this story and not want to use drugs? You know what exactly. I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and a lot of people don't know. And, you know, part of it is we don't run around and not everybody's comfortable with sharing these very traumatic experiences. But kind of like you yeah. said is, you know, the the purpose is kind of, find what what we can replace it with or better coping skills or harm reduction. And, and everybody's different, right. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you uh, about next. So, you know, I got clean on uh, like sober through 12 uh, step programs, right? And it was just abstinence all the way and everything like that, I'm like, okay, cool. And it's what worked for me, right? But now through my experience, I've seen some people it's harm reduction in various forms, whether it's uh, suboxone maintenance or, you know, whatever it is. So uh, quick random question too. So with, with your recovery, do you practice abstinence or is it a form of long-term harm reduction? Like how, how do you do your Well, I
1: do not use cocaine or
0: heroin.
1: <laughs> um, that, in that sense, I practice total abstinence. Um, if I were to need an opioid for medical use, I would um, you know, make sure that it was um, handled in a way that was monitored and supported appropriately. Um, I have drank alcohol, I have smoked marijuana, um uh you know I do these things occasionally sometimes regularly but it has not um it has not caused me problems Mm -hmm. I'm very careful in terms of substance use um and I use caffeine pretty much daily yeah um uh but um you know it's like you know when I drink I'm always aware like you know um, but the thing is, I just don't like alcohol the way I liked opioids and cocaine. Like, right. I, you know, if I have more than I should, I don't like it.
2: Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah, that exactly. never
1: happened. I mean, yes, I, when I had more cocaine than I should, I didn't like it either, but I still had that like drive to repeat it, even though I hated it at the yeah. end. Um, like that just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I feel like if I would fall into one of those patterns, like I've been experimenting now that marijuana is legal in New York um, with using it for sleep, which is an issue for women and probably men my age as well, (laughs) Um, you know, and like, you know, I could take a benzodiazepine, um, but like, I really don't want to be physically dependent on benzodiazepines. That's Mm -hmm. way worse than, you know, marijuana, Um, you know, so I like, I'm experimenting with this. I'm experimenting with CBD. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to like, you know, find a way to be able to sleep properly. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and for a long time, like I sort of wasn't totally out about the fact that my mm. recovery is not completely absent. Um, but I feel like, you know, I should be out about it now. Um, and if somebody happens to see me drinking a glass of wine, they don't have to be, freak like, out. Party. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like, it's funny because I also like part of the reason I kind of stayed closeted about it for a while was just that I know that for people in 12 step recovery, it kind of discredits you. They're just like, well, oh, she's relapsing and, and justifying her relapse and, and she's not really sober. So, <laughs> whatever she says doesn't matter. And, like, that infuriates me in general. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, like, I was completely abstinent um, for at least seven years. Mm. Um, like, and then, um, you know, and at that point, I even rejected antidepressants, which was a major mistake. Like I yeah. really could have had a lot better time in my twenties if I had taken antidepressants earlier. Um, you know, but there was that whole like, oh, you know, it, you're not sober, it doesn't count. And then when I finally took antidepressants, like, holy cow, like this really works to reduce my sensory stuff.
2: Yeah. I am
1: not anhedonic anymore, so I can enjoy things. Yeah. I'm not like constantly like freaking out about being overly needy. Mm-hmm. Um, people like me a lot better because I'm not having all of those things happen. Um, and so like, it solved like a lot of my social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very outraged about the fact that I'd sort of bought into that for a while. I mean, I didn't buy into it for other people. I always thought like, if you need medication, you should take it. Um, but like I, you know, for myself, it took me a long time to actually do it. And I am, you know, been on antidepressants ever since and no intention of stopping. And I don't see that any differently from, you know, being on methadone or suboxone. Like it does what I needed to do in terms Mm -hmm. of turning down the volume. And like a lot of people are very stigmatizing about turning down the volume on things because they think, oh, you don't feel anything oh you know you're numb or something like that well Mm -hmm. if you're constantly up here in terms of the intensity of your sensation like going down here makes you more typical not less yeah so assuming that everybody's down here and needs to be up here is just wrong like the baselines are different for different people Mm -hmm. and so it's really important to um take that into account and recognize that like a drug that for you might be numbing and distancing and like horrible for Mm. somebody who's like constantly in the throes of intense emotion that just might allow them to experience typical emotion and not like be numb.
0: Yeah. And yeah. And that's, you know, especially with antidepressants, like, uh, like I mentioned, you know, uh, I, I did celebrated nine years. I've been taking antidepressants since I got clean, but that was a a huge struggle for me when I when I first got in there. And fortunately, uh, my mom's a psychologist, and she uh, she's a clinical director at a treatment center, and she's very pro medication. So when I started, because I, I had really bad anxiety too. That's one of the reasons I drank and used so much. And yeah. I was freaking out. I'm like, well, if I if if I don't you know get less anxiety and get a little bit happier. I'm gonna go back to like snorting pills. You know what I mean. Right, right, and right. I remember, you know, my first sponsor. He didn't agree with the antidepressants, and and I'm just like, well, oh well, I'm taking them. You know what I mean. And that was that was my thing, and it's what I try to teach other people if they do go the 12 step route. I had to heavily filter what yeah, was coming. Take you in. Take yeah, take the like, and leave
1: the rest was the most important slogan because you know my feeling on 12 step is first of all we shouldn't be paying for it in treatment centers. It should not mm. be part of the treatment like it is a self-help group and it is very useful for social support, but teaching people the ideology of 12 steps and calling it addiction treatment,
2: Mm. is
1: making us pay for stuff you can get for free while not giving people access to stuff you can't get for free. Mm. So, and also not to mention first amendment issues in terms of like, you know, the religious spiritual thing um, and the anti-medication bias. I have personally found that AA is way better than NA in terms of anti medication bias because NA explicitly um, opposes maintenance. Um, Whereas AA quite sensibly says that's between you and your doctor. And if you're honest with your doctor, um, it's fine.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And I think, you know. Again, like that's why 12-step is not medicine. We are not doctors. We should not be prescribing or de-prescribing things for other people Mm -hmm. um, or ourselves, you know. um, So yeah, I think, you know, and and I mean, like, there is a lot of conflict around 12-step that I feel is unneeded in the sense that if 12-step would just be 12-step, a voluntary self-help group, the way it was founded to be, and the eighth tradition says we shouldn't be paid for counseling alcoholics, um, which many people are um, in terms of the 12-steps, um, you know, we would have a much better system. That said, I think people in recovery are very valuable in the treatment system, but mm-hmm. they need to be ecumenical about what they recommend
0: mm-hmm. and
1: say, well, this is what worked for me. It might not work for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's why I like when treatment centers kind of offer like the menu of recovery, like, Hey, here's a bunch of stuff. Here's evidence-based therapies. Here's cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. Hey, and here's smart recovery. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, here's AA if you want to dabble, you know, and just all these yeah. different things to see what it is. But yeah, I, what I try to do is teach people like, Hey, like you mentioned with AA, I would always show clients cause we were a dual diagnosis treatment facility. Yeah. pretty much everybody in there had a mental illness right. of some sort, whether right. it was just depression, anxiety, or schizophrenia, or bipolar, or whatever. And in the AA book, I forgot, I can't remember the page off the top of my head, but I would read it, because it, it literally says in the book about, you know, turning to doctors for their advice, and, you know, doing what they say, because we're not doctors, you know, so that's something that, you know, does concern me. But I, I'm curious, um, with your experience, from my experience, it seems like some specific groups are a little bit more anti don't do yes. any.
1: I mean, and there are some like, there definitely are some NA meetings where if you're on Suboxone, you're allowed to share. Mm. Um, but that just speaks to the whole stigma of it, because like, in many of them, if you are on Suboxone or methadone, you are considered dirty, not clean, mm. and you're not allowed to share, you're not allowed to count your days, you're not allowed to do basically any participation in a meeting other than listening. And that's ridiculous. Like, that is hugely stigmatizing. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the groups that do allow you to share, um, that's great. I think some of them restrict people on maintenance from service positions, which is not great. Um, mm. But I think, you know, I don't know, I would recommend a person with opioid addiction to just go to AA um, mm-hmm. uh, because usually people have also at least had some alcohol issues. Um, and, you know, but it's, it just in the steps are the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of those, things, and like you like you mentioned too uh, about that kind of social support. So lately, since things are kind of reopening, I've been going to a 12-step meeting just once a week just to be around people. You know what I mean? Because I work from home and I do it. So I'm just like, here's a place where I can be with people and hear about things. And, and a lot of it's just, you know, I, I like listening to experiences from others because it helps me get out of my head when I'm like, oh, my day's going so bad. And then you hear somebody who's really going through something and I'm like, oh, hey, you know, But um, but yeah, so... I have a little bit more of your time, and one thing I absolutely love about this new book, too, and I just wish we can just implant it into everybody's head, it's it's about improving quality of life and focusing on that, right? Preventing death and improving quality of life. So, can you discuss like, a little bit about that, that goal of the book and educating people on you know, how harm reduction might help improve that quality of life for them, where they might be able to function, whether it's by decreasing their use or getting you know, whatever it is?
1: I mean, yeah, like I think um, you know, part of the problem around the way America sees drugs in general and that's why I called the book Undoing Drugs because our concept of drugs is like, alcohol is not a drug, caffeine is <laughs> not a drug. You know, no, we need to recognize these are all drugs. Some are culturally approved, some aren't. And yeah. that's mostly a matter of racism. So let's fix that. Um, but I think the, um, in terms of um, you know, improving quality of life and stuff like this, what harm reduction says is that recovery could be seen as any positive change.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: so now you're using a clean needle. Now you're only using on weekends, you know, it has to, and it clashes with the 12 steps in the sense that people kind of get this view that if you're actively using, you can't emotionally grow and you can't connect to other human beings and you're basically a subhuman. Mm -hmm. Um, Harm reduction says no to that. Harm reduction says that like recovery can start before you even put down the drugs. And in fact, for some people, that may be the only way you can start. For example, if you're extremely traumatized, um, you may need to learn better skills to cope with your trauma before you stop using, because otherwise you will not be able to stop using. Mm -hmm. And so there's all kinds of things like that. But also I think, you know, Most human beings want the same things. We want to love and have meaningful work and connect with each other and have some fun and maybe listen to some music or something Um, or play it if you can. Um, So, um, you know, that's the stuff that matters. Mm
2: -hmm. Can you
1: be there for your kid? Can you be there for your husband? Can you be there for your cat? Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like, can you do something meaningful to help the world be better? it doesn't matter what substances are in your bloodstream like the idea that like having a substance in your bloodstream means you're dirty um mm. whatever now i completely get that abstinence is critical for for some people's recovery and like i said i am from cocaine and heroin
2: yeah
1: um you know and i don't want to say like oh i could like occasionally use cocaine or whatever no i can't like i recognize that yeah and i think it's understandable to like want some distance from the substances that cause you problems. And if mm-hmm. that's all substances, then that's all substances. Mm-hmm. Um, the the problem comes when you stigmatize other people whose pathway is different. Yeah. Um, and so what harm reduction says is there's a zillion pathways. We want everybody to be as happy and healthy as possible, whether you're using or not, mm-hmm. our focus is harm. Like, yeah. And, i mean i kind of feel like that is like a philosophy for life like we're gonna do harm in life we want to try to minimize it yep. we're gonna harm the climate hopefully we're gonna harm it less soon
2: yeah
1: um we're you know we're gonna hurt other people because it's impossible not to sometimes mm-hmm. um how do we minimize that and how do we make amends for that when we need to do and like, i mean this is the thing for me with the 12 steps is that I believe every human being could benefit from moral inventory and from making amends and and all of that good stuff. I just have a problem when it's only people with addiction who are the sinners that need to do this. I feel like the (laughs) entire, you know, if you make it like this is a general way of living better morally. And if you do live better morally, you probably will feel better about yourself and then you will not want to use drugs as much. that to me is the thing, you know, and yeah. other than that, if you don't like any of that, but you want to get a new network of people in your life um, to replace the people, you know, that you are using with that you can't hang out with anymore, um, then again, very useful. Um, but I think people need to kind of package together the elements that they need for recovery. So maybe it's going to a gym, maybe it's um going to meetings maybe it's going to church maybe it's going to temple or the mosque or wherever you worship Mm -hmm. um you know different things are going to be the case for different people and different things are going to be necessary at different times during your recovery like sometimes you might not need antidepressants i'm not going to mess with that personally but (laughs) well i mean the funny thing for me personally is just that like I have had sensory issues some from the time I was born. Yeah. I do not think that they're suddenly gonna go away and I can just stop taking my meds. Um, but, um, you know, who knows, maybe I shall change my mind at some point. Um, but yeah. again, like looking, you know, figuring out like what it is for you that matters, what gives you meaning, what gives you purpose, what gives you comfort, um, how do you make your connections with other people as good as possible That's what you need to find, and how do you cope with the inevitable stress um, without doing something self-destructive?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I loved how you said that too. Like, uh, you know, when I when I initially, you know, went through 12-step programs I, and I learned about what all the, you know, the moral inventory and stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm like, why am I the only one doing this? Everybody is, you know what I mean? I have friends who come with to me for advice and stuff. And I, I teach them the lessons without telling them where it's coming from. But yeah, I'm a better father. I'm a better son. I'm a better employee, you know, all these things, right? But as we mentioned earlier, it's, you know, take what works and get rid of it, that stuff. But yeah. la- last question for you. Um, so let's say somebody reads your book and they're like, Maya really knows what she's talking about with this harm reduction thing. And I want to do something. I want to do something right now to help get the word about harm reduction out there or decriminalization, what is what is probably the best step that somebody can do? Is it increasing awareness? Is it you know, knocking on their you know, mayor's door? Like what, it, what what can people do to start helping? Sure, so
1: um, some good resources include the National Harm Reduction Coalition, um, mm-hmm. which is harmreduction.org, um, the Drug Policy Alliance on the policy side, um, I believe they are drugpolicy.org um, and just in general becoming aware of this as a way of seeing and then applying that to whatever political activism you may be doing. Um, Mm -hmm. It was really cool to see Black Lives Matter pick up harm reduction um, as an idea and and as something that as a movement they support um, because so much of the harm of the drug war has come on the backs of Black community. Um, So that's one way of getting involved. Also, especially if you're interested in racial justice as well, mm-hmm. um, Two and should one be one if you are like, you know, if you're trying to deal, you cannot, you cannot ignore that aspect if you're trying to reduce harm because that has been some of the most, you know, harmful. Mm-hmm. Harm. Um, and so there are also, um, you know, local needle exchanges where you can volunteer. Um, any of those things get involved in the naloxone program um, and just, yeah, like lobby your politicians that we don't want this drug war anymore Mm
0: -hmm. and that
1: it's not just weed.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll link all that stuff down in the description. And speaking of too, before I let you go, we're recording this before the book launch, but when it airs, the book will be out. So where can people find the book and where can they keep up with you for updates, events that you're doing and stuff like that? Uh, right sure. So
1: um, so you could, if you want to get it from indies, bookshop.org is good. Um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any bookstore should be able to have it. If you ask them to order it, it's always good for an author. Yeah. Um, uh, I am, yeah so those are generally the um, places you can get it. Um, and to find me, um, I'm at MayaSz.com. So it's M-A-I-A, S like Sam, Z like zebra. So um, and uh, yeah because i didn't want people to have to spell my name the whole thing
0: you
1: <laughs> can <laughs> find my website
0: <laughs> awesome yeah and i'll link all that down below and and you you're you're pretty active on twitter too so i'll put yes, that down yes yes
1: my at, my azia twitter is often the best place to find me although perhaps someday i'm going to minimize that although i have to say i have met some fabulous people on twitter and that's, that's how
0: i connected with you
1: <laughs> yeah so exactly so i mean and it's it's just like Yes, there's a lot of terrible nonsense on there, but you can actually make connections with people in your field um, in a way that is really useful um, for activism and organizing and journalism and Mm -hmm. um, probably for many other careers that I know nothing about.
0: Absolutely. Well, Maya, thank you so much for your time. I love the book and I appreciate you sending me an early copy to check it out and hopefully everybody else reads it. So thanks again. And I I wish you all the best with the book launch.
1: Thank you very much and, and all the best to you as well.
0: Thanks. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. With Maya about her brand new book Undoing Drugs, and yeah, I hope you I hope you learned a few things, and I hope you share this, share this with people you know, because one of the main things I try to do is not only spread awareness but decrease the stigma, and so much of that comes through education, right? And as Maya and I were talking about, a lot of this has to do with drug policy and what we're teaching people about drugs, and you know, uh, the the crazy drug war that hasn't done anything, and if you're Like me, a millennial who grew up and took the DARE program, clearly it didn't work. So, we need some changes and we need to start looking at this stuff and policy changes and all that. So, make sure you check out Maya's book as well. It's linked down in the description. I've linked all the resources that she mentioned as well. And most importantly, follow her over on Twitter because when she's not writing books, she is being an activist and writing, you know, articles and all that kind of stuff. So make sure you're following her. All right. And while you're over there on social media, following Maya, make sure you're following me as well over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes or future episodes, uh, because oftentimes I record these like weeks in advance. So you'll get a little heads up of who I'm talking to so you can grab a copy of the book before the episode even comes out. All right. But if you're new here and you love this episode, you love what I'm doing, talking to these authors about important subjects subjects, make sure you're following or subscribed to the podcast, Uh, whether you're on Apple or Spotify. And on Apple, take two seconds, do me a favor, leave a rating and review. All this stuff, sharing it, rating it, reviewing it, all that helps distribute the podcast to more people. It finds more people because the algorithms are like, oh, people enjoy this kind of content. It's pretty interesting. You know what I mean? So, So share it out there, subscribe and all that good stuff. All right, but there are also some links down below if you wanna support the podcast in any way. Uh, I have books that I've written about my personal recovery journey. I've written some mental health books. They're over at therewiredsoul.com. Or you could become a patron, uh, get advanced episodes, exclusive content, all that stuff. And... As I've mentioned, I am really big into my own mental health, so I use BetterHelp Online Therapy. There's an affiliate link down below. Check that out if you want to improve your mental and emotional well-being with a licensed therapist from the comfort of your own home. All right, but anyways, thanks again to Maya for coming on and I really hope you all go check out her book. But yeah, everybody have a wonderful rest of your day and stay tuned because we have some other great authors coming this week. All right, so thanks for listening and I'll see you all next time.